I've been having blackouts for almost a year now, but no one seems to notice. The first time was at a 16th birthday party that my family threw for my cousin, Adam. His dad got him a DVD of a horror movie he loved, and we decided to watch it since only Adam had seen it before. I was really looking forward to watching the movie, but I fell asleep just when it was getting started. When I woke up, the end credits were rolling. Everyone was talking about their favorite parts of the movie. Dennis was more into it than any of us, Adam said about me, and at the time, I assumed it was a joke. For a while, I thought I was falling asleep at strange times. Then, in geography class, I blacked out like I always did. When I woke up, however, I looked down to see a full page of notes on the lesson, all in my handwriting. It was like I wasn't actually gone, just running on autopilot. I tried to keep track of when I blacked out to see if I could figure out what was causing it. But then, I'd just fall asleep and wake up to find my records missing or destroyed. I'd take notes on my arm, fall asleep, then find them scrubbed away. Something was trying to stop me from understanding it. I could feel myself losing grip on reality and I didn't think anyone would believe me. Eventually I figured it out. The pattern was both simple and cruel. Anything that I felt refreshing was being taken away from me. Anything that relaxed and recharged me was being stolen. I would get the physical benefits of downtime, but not the experience. My stomach would be full after the blackouts, but I didn't get to enjoy the meal. It made life miserable. Yesterday, I finally broke down and told Adam everything while I was at his house. We were hanging out a while while our parents were at the movies, and when he asked me if something was wrong, I just lost it. I told him that I was having a breakdown, and he offered to help. Adam called our parents, but none of them answered. We knew what theater our parents were at, so we decided to take the bus there and tell our parents what was going on. We took our seats on the bus, and Adam put his hand on my shoulder. We'll figure this out, Dennis. Don't worry. I was so relieved, I could barely hold back my tears. I finally reached out for help, and someone was there for me. I closed my eyes just for a moment, and he was gone. I was on a bus, but it wasn't the same one. I was the only passenger. I looked down on my arm and saw something written on it in my own handwriting. They'll never find him. Don't make me do that again. Good morning, sunshine. Time to wake up. I opened my eyes to see Nurse Judy, ready to give me my morning injection. I sit on the bed and roll up my pajama sleeve. I feel the needle under my skin and the medication flowing inside my veins. The nurse gives me a wide smile. Good girl. You can go to the canteen now and have breakfast with your friends. Friends. I don't have friends here. My friends are almost 60 miles away, enjoying life, learning new stuff, making out at parties, certainly not spending their youth in a psychiatric ward. My parents put me there. It was after another anxiety attack at school. I lost control and tried to do something stupid. Now everything seems stupid to me. I pass by nutsy Nora's room. Her yelling is impossible to ignore. She keeps screaming, Kelly and Jenna! Over and over again. I see two doctors rushing into a room with a set of tranquilizers. This place is full of people like her. I don't think I belong here. I enter the canteen and hear a loud, 
Surprise! I look around to see all the other patients gathered around a cake with numbered candles, one and seven, and an inscription, Happy Birthday Robin. Right, it's my 17th birthday. Yay, I totally forgot. I force myself to smile and blow out the candles. The cake tastes like soap or a cough syrup. I hide both candles in my pocket when no one's watching. I guess it's the only gift I can count on today. I stop one of the nurses on my way back to my room. I ask if my parents are going to come see me. She shrugs and walks away without saying a word. Bitch. As I lay in bed, I stretch out my arms and look at my hands. They look so weird, so damn weird. Maybe it's a side effect of one of those medications. Nurse Judy interrupts my contemplation. She storms in with the afternoon's dosage of pills. How are you feeling, my dear? Did you like the birthday surprise? She asks with an annoying sweet smile. Yeah, I forgot today's the day. She takes my hand and says, Oh, don't worry, darling. It happens to everybody. As she holds my hand, I ask her why my skin looks so strange. Nurse Judy gives me a sympathetic gaze. I think it's normal at your age. Don't you think so, sweetie? Is she trying to make a fool of me? But I'm only 17, I said imploringly. I don't know any other teenagers with hands like these. Just look. I take the candles out of my pocket and almost rub them in her face. You see? One in seven. Seventeen. Judy gently takes the candles from my shaking hands. Robin, it's not seventeen. Let me show you the right order. It's seven and one. Seventy-one. Our farm was small and we had a lot of land. Most of the fences were ruined and my dad would try to go and fix it, but it was difficult for him since he lost a leg back when I was born. I touched the scar on my shoulder that ran to my collarbone. My parents explained that wolves attacked our farm. Dad had to have his leg amputated because of an infection after being bitten. Trying to salvage the farm costed them too much and when they tried to sell it, nobody wanted it. So, we were stuck. My parents were always paranoid that the wolves would attack again, so they never let me out past dark. I've been homeschooled my whole life. I don't have any friends. I don't have anyone except my parents. We lived miles away from other people, and we didn't even have internet or phone service out here. Sometimes when I go out with my mom to the store, I would see girls holding hands and laughing. It makes me sad. But sometimes, late at night though, I don't feel so alone. I can hear their voices. They were far away, but I could hear them calling me. Myra, come home. My parents almost never let me watch any movies, but when it's really late at night, the TV would play those old black and white movies, and I finally saw one about werewolves. So, whenever mom would take me to the library, I secretly learned more about them. I became more certain that this was my real family. I waited until my parents went to sleep one night, then I ran out the back door. I jumped the broken fence and ran into the forest. It was dark and the only light was coming from the moon. I stopped when I no longer heard the howling. 
I panted as I could see wolves approaching me. I smiled, feeling uneasy. I'm home. I'm home, I panted happily. The growling continued, but stopped when a loud growl emerged. Behind a tree, a large wolf walked towards me. When he stood up, I felt a sudden fear seize me as all the other wolves bowed their heads to him. He walked towards me, and I kept my head down, staring at the ground. With one hand, he grabbed my neck and forced me to look at him. His face was that of a wolf's, but he looked nothing like the werewolves I saw on TV. His face was scarred up, one eye was foggy, and I assumed he was blind. He sniffed me up and down, and then stopped at my scar. Welcome home, I barely understood from the gurgling. I stared back at him, and for a moment, all the fear left me. I gently placed my hands on his and closed my eyes. It felt like I finally found my place. I then opened my eyes when his hands started to tighten around my throat, and I could see he was salivating. It's been years, maybe decades, since the last time I've seen anyone. I looked down, my fin was beginning to decay, my time was running out. As I broke the surface, I could see a large boat in the distance. Swimming closer, I saw a family of three on the boat. I poked my head just above the water as a little girl, no older than eight, saw me and yelled out, Daddy, Ariel is in the water. I quickly dipped back into the water and followed the boat at a safe distance, every so often poking my head out of the water to reveal myself to the little girl, and without fail, she kept calling her parents to come over and see. The boat finally stopped and I saw some fishing lines drop from the front of the boat. Good. I got close to the boat as I ascended. I held my index finger to my lips, hoping that the little girl would understand. When she saw me, she was about to speak, but then she covered her mouth and nodded. She had a little pink life vest on, big bright blue eyes, and soft blonde hair that bounced around her cute face. Is your name Ariel? She bounced up and down. I thought about the little mermaid, something that I haven't seen in a long time, and nodded. But you're old. Her words stung me. I scowled, but quickly masked it with a smile. I waved to her to come into the water, patting the surface making teeny splish splash noises, and she stared with uncertainty until I raised my fin to entice her. My fins, though decaying, were still a vibrant purple. Her eyes lit up and she jumped into the water. As she did, I unbuckled the vest from her and tossed it aside. I patted my back and she climbed on, looking nervous, wrapping her little arms around my neck. I glanced over my shoulder, holding my nose and she mimicked me by taking a deep breath as we dove under. It became darker the further we went. My heart was racing when I pulled her hands away and turned towards her. I opened my mouth and my jaw extended outward, the skin on my cheeks ripping as my jaw becomes unhinged. My teeth start to grow, long and pointed like an angler's, 
My nails became jagged and sharp. I saw the horror on her face as I lunged at her, seeking my teeth into her little neck. Little air bubbles escaped her as she tried to scream, but I consumed her. When I came to, I was looking up at the sky. I could hear seagulls nearby and feel the waves crashing on my legs, but I couldn't move my body. I lay there for a while before I heard someone yell in the distance, and soon enough I heard footsteps approaching me. A man hovered over me. Are you okay, little girl? I always told Sarah and our children that I was only afraid of death. Nothing else frightened me, not even heights or spiders, only the inevitability of one day facing my own mortality. I don't fear anymore. No, I welcome it. I beg for it in these everlasting, unending moments. There is no rest for me, as I can't sleep. I am forced to stay awake and listen from my resting place, accompanied in this void by the constant beating of my heart. It's a curse, and I don't know what I did to deserve such a fate. My family can't hear me, because they believe that I'm already dead. I hear them when they visit me, though. They treat my resting place as a confessional, sharing their most intimate thoughts and beliefs, as though they are speaking to no one at all. But no, I hear them. I have no choice. It is a small gift that, over these years, these visits have become less frequent. Sarah was the first one to stop visiting. She begged for forgiveness and understanding as she had finally relented to our children's wishes and moved on from our union. Their stepfather was kind to them, Sarah told me, and they are both on the path of truly seeing him as a father. I'm sure you would want me to move forward, she told me unable to hear my silent protest. He keeps me safe. He makes me happy. Daggers to my still beating heart. I don't think I've wished for death more than I did that day, if only to end my constant suffering. Michael was the second one to stop visiting. He admitted to hating me for not being there to teach him how to be a man. He blamed me for his own immaturity. It pained my heart when Rene stopped by recently to hear from my resting place that my daughter walked down the aisle with her stepfather instead of me, that she was expecting her first child in the coming months. She had the audacity to pray that I would be there to watch over my granddaughter, guiding her as she enters the world. I am so desperate to leave, I spit on her prayers. Renee believed in her more candid moments of confession that she was the only one to care for me after all these years. She saw her more frequent visits to my resting place as a badge of honor, something to brag to her friends about because it made her a good person. If she wished to honor her father's memory, she would have pulled the plug years ago. But of course, she insists that I wouldn't want that, which I suppose is my own fault. He was only afraid of one thing, she tells the nurses. I know he'll never wake up, but this is what my father wants. 